it's it, to me it's so fascinating because you talk to so many runners and there's not the same maybe pride or ego. I'm not sure what the right word is as someone who's like a state champion baseball player, basketball. Yeah. You know, more of a, a televised sport. And it, it's just fascinating to me how most runners kind of have that outsider's chip on their shoulder. Oh yeah, no, I'm I. I... You are the only distance runner I know who likes football. Um, yeah, no, and, that's, <laughs> and 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 I count myself amongst that, um, and and it's because there's a lot of resentment that grows up with that. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the most pleasant exhaustion podcast, brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden, and I'm Patrick Ollinger. We are endurance athletes, coaches here in the Atlanta area. Thanks for listening. Um, happy opening week of the bike season. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did, so, didn't know that was a, a thing this week. You didn't realize that, that this weekend the first two classics, Umloop Het Newsblatt and Kern Brussels Kern, are actually taking place? I must say that that did escape my imagination. I but was, I didn't know we did just win curling. So we did. Actually, we're going to talk about the curling gold here in just a minute. But but yeah, no. Uh, there's there's uh, in professional cycling. There's uh, the Tour Down Under takes place in January, and then there's like literally the Tour of Qatar and uh, another Middle Eastern event. And but this weekend is the the start of the spring classics season um and uh and so yeah umloop het newsblot my wife always jokes that like all the belgian classics races sound like they have made up names um that was it does sound like willy wonka so a little bit yeah um and then uh then today kern brussels kern can you guess where that goes uh yes (laughs) it goes from kern (laughs) to brussels to brussels Wait a minute. <laughs> and back to Kern. There yeah. you go. Yeah. So so uh, that's actually took place this morning, so I don't know. Uh, Tokyo Marathon was also this morning, you probably seen. Yeah, I did. Um, first uh, first marathon or world marathon major of the year, isn't that right? Yes, that yeah. sounds right. Yeah, and then Boston, of course, will be next month and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, very good. So um, it begins. Yeah, right on. But yet, as beginnings, today was also the closing ceremony of the Winter Olympics. You watched today? Absolutely, I did. Um, I watched, I think, the figure skating, the skiing, snowboarding. It was fun. I got into it more than I usually do. Right on. You know, how about you? I, I got into it four years ago, um, and it's kind of funny. Uh, I realized, literally driving home a couple days ago, four years ago during the Winter Olympic Games, my wife was pregnant with my sons um, and about to give birth. Yeah. And, and now they're, next month, they'll be four. I mean, obviously. Um, but yeah, that was very striking to me. Just that, that's been a pretty crucial four years. <laughs> and big difference in how much TV you can watch. Yeah, right. right? With four year old twins and without. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, so yeah, I mean, as much as I, as much as we, my wife and I both enjoy the Olympics, we just haven't really watched it nearly as much this time. Um, we've just been watching other things and I've been kind of following along, like you said. Americans won their first gold in curling mm-hmm. um, a couple nights ago, which was glad to see. Um, did you see the, uh, the cross country skiing? Uh, sprint relay. I saw the replay on YouTube. Right on. Yeah, I, I, I watched the replay as well after people were, were talking about how awesome it was. Which and it was great, right? Yes. Did you watch the whole race or just did you watch the finish? Oh, just the final two minutes. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, the whole race was only fifteen minutes long. So it's it's a cool race. Um, for those of you who didn't see it, this is the the women's cross country skiing sprint relay, and and each member of the team had three legs mm-hmm. and so there's there's six different pieces of the race there's six relay legs but only two team members and so they literally go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth yeah. which is totally cool um but uh and then each leg is only i want to say it was about 1200 1200 meters it was mm-hmm. just a little bit over a kilometer yeah uh, and so the entire race is is just over seven thousand uh seven thousand meters just over seven kilometers so it's a fairly short race mm-hmm. um, but it goes up a hill and around this i mean it's just super cool yeah um, and, uh, and yeah, so two Americans, Jesse Diggins and, and Keegan Randall, um, uh, won the Americans first gold medal in cross country skiing. So, uh, which was a super exciting race running a sprint finish. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what makes that sport so fascinating is it translates so well to running and cycling because I mean, it's you know, really training a lot of the same physiological systems, mm-hmm. a lot of the same emotions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it was last Olympics that somebody came back from some, like they fell early in the race. Yeah. And I think when you fall on skis, it's like completely different than falling in. Yeah, it's like, more a like crashing game. on a bike. Right. Yeah. Uh, they just talked to, they just showed these highlights of this person coming back and somehow 
still winning. Yeah, very cool. And it's just it's fascinating to see. You know, it's it's a similar sport, but then the differences make it intriguing. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and and we can uh, we can kind of digress real quickly into into that similarities here to to an article that we actually posted. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw. Well, first of all, side note. Keegan Randall, so one of the two people on the relay team, um, you know, as you talk about the uh, the, the similarities, she's actually uh, she's a very accomplished runner. She's a ten time state champion in Alaska. Ten times, ten times, yeah. Which now Patrick can appreciate this, and I can appreciate this, but but for those of you who are listening that didn't necessarily run in high school, so state champion, you have cross country in the in the fall, you have track in the spring, and for the most part, track in the spring, you only have like. A couple of events that you can do, two or so, maybe three. Yeah, and so so to win ten state championships, that means that she was averaging two and a half state championships for all four years that she was in high school. Um, that's kind of incredible. Yeah, yeah. I know a guy who um, uh, a guy who still lives in Atlanta went to Westminster. Was my age back in the day. Who was an eleven time state champion here in Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, which means he won cross country in the mile his freshman year in high school. And then he won. That's just unheard of, especially oh, yeah. for men. Yeah, and then won won cross country mile and two mile, all his sophomore year, junior year, and senior year. Um, just amazing, incredible. Um, there are but, so many things that make that amazing, including the fact that he avoided injuries yeah, for no what yeah. eight straight seasons. Yeah, I mean that's pretty rare. But you know what? Then he went off to college and got injured a lot. Oh, there you go. And so you know, and, and you would have thought he'd be like, oh, he certainly he's going to be an All American in college. You know, maybe even competing for for national championships, and he didn't. So, um, but anyway, so yeah, Keegan Randall. Um, she so she she was a ten time state champion when she was in uh, in uh, Alaska. She ran right at seventeen minutes for five k, mm-hmm. which is you know super fast. Right. Um, ran just a little bit over twenty eight minutes for five miles um, for mm-hmm. for eight k. Um, but then when she went off to college, she decided to be a cross country skier instead, and clearly that's worked out for her because she, you know, she just won a gold medal in the uh, in the sprint relay there, along with Jesse Diggins. Yeah, she almost sounds like a fictional character. If you were writing a Disney movie about a cross country skier, you'd be like, "Well, it's a cross country runner in Alaska." <laughs> well, <laughs> right? Maybe she will. Uh, maybe there will be a Disney movie about her. You know, we'll see. There you go. Um, and then Jesse Diggins actually, she she was one of the flag bearers. Mm-hmm. In the uh, uh, in the the closing ceremony, which I think is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, let lest we leave that out because that's obviously pretty important too. But anyway, back to those similarities things. Um, some of y'all might have seen that I posted an article on the uh, on the most pleasant exhaustion uh, Facebook page. Um, it's a research article. It's in a peer reviewed journal, but it it profiles uh, a Norwegian skier named Marit Bjornen. Um, and Marie Bjornen is the most successful cross-country skier of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the one of the most successful, if not at this point, the most successful female Olympian of all time. Um, she actually was anchoring the leg the, the, in that race for Norway and finished third. So, so uh, Keegan Randall actually uh, outkicked her, I guess. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, there was a, a peer-reviewed article that, that focused on her training over the course of five years. Um, and talked about the different training that she did um, and said, you know, she built for 12 years and then she had this five-year period where during that five-year period she won 18 world championships. Um, she won more than 100 World Cup races um, over the course of this five-year period. So, you know, dominant uh, well, athlete. Yeah, the Lance Armstrong of cross-country so, skiing. So, yes, apparently. minus the uh, performance enhancing drugs. Uh, Good point. <laughs> and uh, and so, so, yeah, um, and and... Among the many other striking things in that article is it said that 91% of the work that she did was devoted to endurance training. Mm-hmm. And of that, 90% of that work was at a low intensity. Mm-hmm. So about 80% of that work was done at a low intensity. And, and again, she's doing super short races. Like the sprint relay is, is uh, you know, three times a 1,200 in a mm-hmm. race. And she's doing these long endurance um, um, things. Um, and so, yeah. We said before, uh, and we said recently, endurance is what matters most, and that that easy stuff, that aerobic stuff, is what matters most, um, and that's certainly borne out by um, Marie Bjorgen's career mm-hmm. as, and, and her training, as evidence in this article. Um, so yeah, check it out; it's very cool. Absolutely, yeah, that's pretty cool to see that it, that translates even to cross country skiing. Mm-hmm. I was almost wondering if their training required more power in their legs, or you know, mm-hmm. a bit more in high intensity stuff. So. 
No. It's interesting that it's a lot of the same principles as yeah. cycling and running. Yeah, yeah and, and you would think, okay, um, because they have to, in particular, it's more like cycling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there right. was a couple of there was a couple of, uh, of uh, U.S. men's skiers um, uh, four or eight years ago. I think it was four years ago who were who were really successful in cross country skiing, and they employed a lot of the drafting techniques that they used during the off season when they were recreational cyclists and bike racers. Um, and, and it's very similar that you kind of break away from the pack and stuff like that, and you attack and recover mm-hmm. the way that you do in, in cycling. Um, but yet, still, the most important thing is is endurance, is being able to go and then keep on going. Um, so yeah, I thought that was important and good. Um, uh, not to, uh, not to put a damper on all this cool stuff about the Olympics, but, um, did you see the, the, let's talk about Russia real quick. Okay. (laughs) Yep. Just, just because it circles back around to another piece of news that we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. Um, you saw that there was actually a, a, a hacking attack on the Olympic games during the opening ceremonies. Um, and it now, uh, appears clear that that was actually done by Russian hackers yeah. Um, and they tried to pin it on North Korea by using North Korea IP addresses, but it turns out that it's been traced back to actually Russian hackers during that time. Um, the uh, the Russian athletes, as you probably saw, or as you know, um, weren't, uh, weren't allowed to compete under the flag of Russia. Um, and so if they won medals or if they won gold medals, the Russian anthem wasn't played. Um, they weren't referred to as athletes, or they weren't referred to as Russians, they were referred to as Olympic athletes from Russia. Right, um, and then there was some question as to whether they were going to allow the the Russian flag to be displayed at the closing ceremonies, and they said no. Right. Um, uh, you know, to make matters worse for Russia, I think they had a curler and a bobsledder who were caught doping during the games. Um, One of them was even wearing a shirt that said "I do not dope" or I something along that. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's, it was something. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up in just a second here. It, but it was it was something like you know, doping is bad, or or I, all this without doping, or something else like that. Some some real kind of in your face thing about how she's not a doper. Yeah, and then she tested positive. Yeah, um, it's almost like the saying: anybody who claims to be a nice person probably mm-hmm. isn't a nice person. Right. Or people who talk about how smart they are aren't really all that smart. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you're talking about how you have the best brain and stuff, and, uh, I don't know, you don't probably don't really need to convince people of that. Um, but then, um, uh, and then likewise, did you now an athlete that I coach pointed this out to me, and in turn I sent it to you, but I haven't looked at it yet. That there was a BBC interview with uh, Grigory Rachinkov. I saw highlights, so I only saw a couple quotes. I have not watched it yet. Um, it was just as damning as you would think. All right, great. Quick, quick side note. You tell us who Grigory Rachinkov is, because you're actually the one who turned me on. Oh, gosh. Um, okay. So he he was a Russian who worked for the... I don't even know if you could say he worked for the Russian government, but he was working with yeah. them Yeah. at the very least. He, he, was, and he was the head of their sporting lab. So. That's it. That's what it was. Yeah. All right, he was the head of the sporting lab. And he was in charge of running the anti-dope, their version of the anti-doping agency, essentially, right? <laughs> yeah, their, their, their version of the anti-doping agency, which means their doping program. Right, and so, which, <laughs> which meant he literally organized, how do we dope these people? How do we, A, not let them know they're being doped? Mm-hmm. And then how do we get away with it? Right. So, like, they would do things like, they may have a group of 10 runners, and they may say, you know, we don't like this one, because maybe they're just not pretty enough. Like, I mean, they literally picked based on random reasons. They're not Russian enough. Yeah. And then they'd say, all right, well, we're going to test them positive. That way we can prove that our tests are catching people. Right. And the athlete themselves may not even know they're doping, because right. it, it may be um, put in their food, and they right. didn't even know it. Right. He came out and helped, was an integral part of a Netflix documentary that exposed... A lot about how much they doped, how they did it, when they did it. He said that it came from the state, so high-ranking state officials knew about it. This was not something that the regulators didn't know about. They actually worked with regulators. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a pretty, um, pretty damning documentary. If you ever see it, just know you're gonna you're gonna watch the Olympics in a totally different light yeah. now. I the, see the, it. The documentary is called Icarus. Icarus, yes, thank yeah. you. Uh, and it's and it's actually nominated for Academy Award now. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the creator of the documentary is a guy named Brian Fogel. And I think we talked about this already on this podcast. So we don't need to go into too much. But Brian Fogel was, was a, a good recreational cyclist. Yes. Um, and, and he decided to, to basically dope himself for a year to see if he, how much better he could get. Yeah. And he got a lot better. Right. Um, like, like for those of you who, who, are, who are in numbers and, and are cyclists and all that sort of thing, his functional threshold power 
went from uh, 250 watts to 360 watts, um, which means that, and, and my functional threshold power by, by comparison, when I'm at my fittest is about 315. So he went from somebody who was um, not nearly as good as I was to somebody who was far better than I was. <laughs> and marginal gains um, like that have a massive difference. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter what sport you are. You will you can look at the NFL and they're like, oh, this guy's the number one pick because he's 6'3". Oh, this one's the seventh round pick because he's 6'2". Right. I mean, it's... Oh, yeah. No, massive. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, when you're talking about people that are already at such a high level. Right. Um, yeah, for sure. So, but anyway, um, in order to help him out with that, he got Grigory Rachinkov to help him. And then in the second half of the documentary, Grigory, because they established a relationship with one another while Grigory was literally helping him dope, um, Grigory confides in him about all these bad things he's doing for the Russian government, and then and then Brian ends up helping him escape. Right, and um, he and he, he and, ends up having to go into hiding. Yeah, and he still is in hiding. Right. That's the reason why that interview was such a big deal. And the, like, if you've ever seen the interview, I mean, he's wearing a mask, sunglasses. Yeah. I mean, it's not. Yeah, no, he's in he's in for real danger. Um, and so, so we don't actually know where Brian doesn't even know where he is. I heard an interview with Brian on of all people Lance Armstrong's podcast, right? Um, which was excellent, by the way. Um, you know, I mean, we don't need to digress into that, but the, but the interview is very good. Um, and uh, and yeah, Brian Fogel doesn't even know where he is now. Yeah, which is incredible. Um, but yeah, so so he had so so there was a interview that came out with him. Mm-hmm. For the first time we've heard from him since Icarus came out, since he's been in hiding. Um, and so, yeah, I'll be interested to kind of go back and take a closer look at that. Um, but anyway, um, uh, this is our news and research podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as you might have gathered, since we're talking about sort of what's going on right now, um, and and before we jumped into news and research, um, we both have a piece of news, we both have a piece of research we want to share. I did want to say a quick word about um, something that came up in the last podcast. Um, we've gotten a lot of good questions about uh, on, on the Facebook page and, and via email uh, from people, and, and of course just folks we talked to on the side of the track, uh, about those kind of training fundamentals. Um, and, and I do encourage folks to, to, to reach out with those. Um, but a couple of folks did say uh, and asked me and, um, and wrote me an email about this idea that we joked about and that, that I even put in the intro about the idea of, of George the Athlete and Patrick the Athlete versus George the Coach and Patrick the Coach. Mm-hmm. And a couple of people kind of thought that it sounded, it came off as hypocritical, that we say to do all these things, but we don't actually do them ourselves. And I, I kind of want to clarify that a little bit because we do do them ourselves. Right. Um, and I think that what I meant when I was saying that is that, that, that yeah, I still go to the weight room and I still do core work. I just really don't want to. Right. And so, so what I'm trying to say when I talk about George the athlete and George the coach is that that I can appreciate how difficult it is to do all these things you don't really want to do. Mm-hmm. I still do them, um, but but I appreciate how difficult it is. Um, but as far as like easy days easy and 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 hard days hard and and all that sort of thing, those are things that that I strongly believe in. From as a from a coach's perspective, but they're also things I very much practice from an athlete's perspective. So, lest you think that we're we're telling you one thing and doing another um, as athletes. No, we, I, I purposely say at the outset of this uh, this podcast, we are athletes and coaches. Right. Um, so yeah, anything to add on that? I would just say yeah, we're you know we're in this struggle with you, uh, <laughs> I, and what I mean by that is you know everybody probably has one part of training is not their favorite, whether it's strength training, whether it's nutrition sleep. There's probably one or two things that each of us really struggle with. And for different people, it's something different, but we all understand there's one thing that's probably a constant struggle, Mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of is part of what makes us runners is we decide to attack that struggle head on and and do the best that we can and be the best person that we can or the best version of ourselves that we can be. And, you know, I, I always, I always, whenever I talk to people about, okay, so why do you want a coach? What's a coach do for you? One of the things that having a coach does for you is that a coach makes you do the things you don't really want to do. Mm-hmm. Because left to your own devices, athletes yeah. will do the stuff they want to do. Yeah, They'll do the same workouts over and over and over and over again, and they'll avoid doing the stuff they don't really want to do. But if a coach puts them in your schedule and holds you accountable to it, you're more likely to do it. Yeah. As an athlete, I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. As, a, as an athlete, I kind of just want to do the workouts I want to do over and over again. And I just want to run. I don't want to go lift weights, and mm-hmm. I don't want to cross train I just want to run yeah um and uh and I want to be left alone <laughs> yeah you know? I mean so, so, so I get it as an athlete mm-hmm. now I still force myself and discipline myself to do the things I, I, I don't want to do 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and during the times when I've had a coach, I've done what the coaches told me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even when there were things I didn't really want to do, and even when there were things that took a lot of mental energy for me to do. Um, and so, yeah, we're in the struggle with you. We mm-hmm. get it. Um, all right, so speaking about the struggle, let's talk about some news here. Um, as I already mentioned, it was the opening weekend of cycling, but there was a piece of news that might have slipped past a couple of folks from a few weeks ago um, having to do with Gwen Jorgensen. Now, we've talked about how I am grudgingly becoming a Shalane Flanagan fan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the class of athletes that everybody seems to really like a lot except for me is also Gwen Jorgensen. <laughs> okay, interesting. <laughs> so Gwen Jorgensen is a, is a gold medal winning triathlete, and she's a great triathlete. Um, and she announced last year that she was retiring from triathlon um, and that she was going to uh, focus on the marathon and that she wanted to, her goal was to win the gold medal at the 2020 Olympic Games in the marathon. That's a pretty lofty goal for somebody changing sports. Right. Um, and she came from running, and, and she, she grew up swimming and then, then was a collegiate runner. Right. Right. And so that's kind of like the ideal person to then become, you know, a professional triathlete. Um, right. You know, somebody that, that can keep up on the swim and then can run really fast. Um, because you can learn to bike in professional triathlon because it's, it's draft legal. And so you can just kind of tuck in the pack. Right. Um, but anyway, um, she, uh, uh, three weeks ago... Um, she did the Husky Classic in Seattle, an indoor race there, uh, and she ran a 5K. She ran the 5,000 meters. It was her first track race since 2009. Um, she had a baby back in August, mm-hmm. um, and so this is one, two, three, four, five, six, less than six months after she had a baby in August, um, and she ran 15:15 for the 5K, mm-hmm. uh, which is a 37-second PR for. First track race since 2009, six months after having a baby, she runs a 37-second PR. I'm still pretty skeptical of whether she can win the gold medal in the marathon in 2020. I'm skeptical of where she can make the team. Right. Um, I'm still skeptical of whether she can 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 win the gold medal. Um, but 15, 15 is no joke. Mm-hmm. You know, especially indoor. Yeah. Which if you yeah. never if early you, in the season indoors. Yeah. If you've never run an indoor race before, I like to tell people what you want to do to know what an indoor race feels like. In the wintertime, turn up the heater as much as you can, <laughs> and then go right up to the heater and just take deep breaths for 15 minutes. Because, I mean, when you're running in a heated yeah. arena, it just feels like you're breathing in whatever it is that that yeah. heater's pumping out, and your lungs are burning yeah. much more than usual. Yeah, indoor indoor track races are... Um, the, the, the climate inside the arena is for the spectators, not for the athletes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, 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 yeah, and then indoor is weird, too, because tracks aren't standardized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one week you might literally run 10 laps the mile bank board track. The next week you might run a 320-meter flat rubberized track. Right. Um, and so it's just odd, um, indoor is. And I've, I've always very much felt like, I mean, there's world indoor championships and all that sort of thing. But I think most track athletes see indoor as a means to outdoor. Um, For sure. But still, given that, though, and so so essentially what we're describing about indoors, we're saying that it's slower and tougher. Mm-hmm. And she ran a 37-second PR, ran 15-15 early in the season, six months after having a baby. So it stands to reason she could, you know, this if, if she continues on this kind of path and does, you know, 5Ks and 10Ks this spring, she could get under 15 minutes mm-hmm. this spring outdoors, um, which is pretty good credentials for somebody who's looking to do a good marathon. Absolutely. Yeah, so we'll see. Of course, you know, Amy Cragg, who won the trials in 2016, um, she ran 221 this morning at Tokyo. I saw that. That so, was so, so, yeah. So, so, again, you know, even winning the trials is an uphill battle for Gwen Dorgensen here. But we'll see. We'll yeah, see. and that kind of gets into it's, it's, I mean, American long distance running is just getting better and better every right year. I mean, yeah. with, with the Bowerman Track Club, the Nike Oregon Project, mm-hmm. Even our very own Atlanta Track Club here is producing some serious talent. Yeah. Um, it's it's amazing to see how many elite athletes we have, elite runners we have. Yeah. And when she, uh, Jorgensen was interviewed after the race, after that 15-15, she even said she loved training with the Bowerman Track Club and the other women of that club. Because right. And she, talked, she pointed to Shailene Flanagan specifically as a model she follows. Right. Uh, she talked about how you know, in running, even at the elite level, it's amazing how much having somebody there, or having a group to run with, really mm-hmm. helps set a tone for her and helps her kind of stay focused when she needs to stay focused and do the right thing on a day in and day out basis. For sure. So mm-hmm. I thought that was yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah, she's being smart. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, she's if, if you know she's running well now and and she's setting herself up for success. Right. 
So, yeah, she's, she's currently doesn't have a sponsor, you might know. She's running with the Bowerman Track Club, but she's not sponsored by Nike yet. How about um, that? Let's give that two weeks. Yeah, right? Um, but she, she had been sponsored by ASICS when she was uh, when she was a triathlete, and she's not sponsored by them anymore because she's no longer a triathlete. So, so yeah, they might have blown it with that, but we'll see. Which, speaking of the uh, the triathlete to running kind of transition, it's kind of interesting because they asked her that, too. Like, well, what's changed in your training? Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's going to change. Right. And she said she went from running 40 miles a week to guess how many miles a week she's running now as a pure runner. 60. Oh, no. 120. What? She's running 120 miles a week right now? That's what she's claiming. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Hundred. She, she ramped it up to 120 miles already? That's what she claims. Here's the real takeaway. It's a lot more running. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. No doubt about that. So, well, yeah, clearly it's working for her. She I had the same reaction as you. I was like, wait, 40 to 120? How is she not broken in half by now? Yeah, okay. Um, but, and then she even talked about how now she, prehab and maintenance are a daily routine. Yeah. As opposed to once a week or mm-hmm. once every few weeks. Yeah. Um, because running is much more monotonous when you're running. Yeah. That many. Once you get over about 50 miles a week, mm-hmm. it's a total game changer in yeah, terms of injury. Tough on your body, man. I mean... Cycling, assuming you don't crash, is not as tough on your body. Swimming is actually good for your body. Yes. Um, whereas, yeah, running beats you up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, good to know. All right, man, what's your news? My news. All right, so this is a fascinating article in Deadspin um, that some folks listening uh, yeah, may have already this. heard. Yeah, this was cool. Um, it was a Q&A with Jack Robertson, who just won the Houston half, uh, beating a really deep field. And the article describes... He ran, he ran one hour and one second, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, could it just give a little more effort? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he ran 60.01. For like, him. think about that. You would have shaved a whole digit off your time. Yeah. Just two seconds faster. Yeah. I, th- I think he has, he has actually run under an hour, though, so. Okay, so, that's... So, yeah, so, so, so he's, he's already broken that barrier. But anyway, keep going. That's good. Well, the article describes how Jake and his twin brother, Zane Robertson, decided to move away f- um, from their home of New Zealand at 18 years old. Um, in a plane that they hatched in their parents' basements, which is where all great ideas come from, I might add. <laughs> and they bought round-trip plane tickets from New Zealand to Kenya. I think they told their parents, like, oh, yeah, we'll be back. Yeah. And then they spent the next 10 years training in Kenya together. Well, okay, so, so yeah, side note on that one. They, they weren't planning to come back. They initially were going to buy one-way tickets, and their parents were like, no, you need to buy round-trip tickets. And so they bought round-trip tickets, and then eventually the round-trip expired. Yeah. Um, because they stayed. Uh, yeah. There was never a plan for them to come back, and they didn't. That had to be some phone call to mother. I know, right? Hey, Mom, our, our round trip is about... I mean, and it's, it's like two years before it expires, and it expired. Um, yeah, I mean, unbelievable. So they were already national-level runners mm-hmm. when they decided they wanted to move to Kenya to train. Um, like I said, they bought the tickets. I think their parents bought the tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I highly encourage anybody to check out this article, because the article does a great job of telling their running story. Yeah. And it's really one of the better running stories I've read. I agree. Uh, and they've because it just tells the story of these two guys who spent the last ten years living in Kenya. Twin brothers. Twin brothers, and um, it just describes all the challenges that they faced over the past ten years. They had to change coaches. Um, they were eighteen years old, and now ten years later, they're kind of right in the peak of their um, athletic you know prowess, and they're just now having those world class results that we saw like in the Houston half marathon. Um, both have run on an Olympic team in New Zealand, so it's not like they haven't run well, but they finally kind of had that breakthrough mm-hmm. um, level race. Mm-hmm. There were some crazy stories in the article. Uh, at one point, they talked about how their initial training group was not really an A-level group, and so their group partners were apparently like robbing them <laughs> one article of clothing at a time. Like, literally stealing clothes out of their bag, stealing clothes right off the clothesline, stealing their iPod. So, we talk a lot about the importance of group training here at ITL, I gotta say. Like, that's... <laughs> that's, 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 not, that's not the kind of group we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. This is a totally different... Um, where did my stuff go? Right. Um, yeah, they they, they literally got down to one, like, one outfit, and it was the outfit they were wearing. And a pair of shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, yeah, I remember somewhere in the article it's it's a it talked about how little things like how how little they showed up with. Like yes. they they showed up in Kenya with with and and they straight just showed up. Yeah, that was the funny thing about it too. It's not like they called ahead and said, "Hey, can we get?" They just showed up and just said, "Hey, we're gonna find we're gonna find our people." Yeah, you know, and and so 
Um, I think our own Anthony Nassler can uh, appreciate that <laughs> mindset. Right on. Um, but they, but they, they literally showed up and and they had you know a bag with some cash and like three pairs of shoes and a couple of outfits and an iPod and that's it. And and then there was a line that said something to the effect of within a month all that stuff had been stolen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just wild. Oh, the other thing they talked about how. They both got typhoid, I think, at one point, oh, from drinking bad water, yeah. and they honestly thought they were going to die, and one of them even said to the other, if I die, like, if I don't wake up tomorrow, you still get in your training run, right? which is, I mean, crazy. Twins, Twins man. Crazy, yeah. Twins are awesome. That, I mean, if, if I had a brother say that to me, I'd be like, no, sir. Like, <laughs> that's, uh, that ain't happening. So it's a great article. It describes the training culture in Kenya, and really what it describes is what it takes to be that elite, world-class level athlete. We were talking about the Olympics earlier, Um, and Olympic athletes are just kind of living a different life. I mean, they're, you know, it kind of ties into the sleep study we're going to talk about a little bit later today, Um, and they're just, there's so many marginal gains that an Olympic athlete can take that someone who is just, this is their life, can make, and those marginal gains may have a small impact over one training block, mm-hmm. but over a 10-year period. Yeah. I mean, if, if, to any of y'all who are investors and you invest in the stock market, you know that that 3% gain every year mm-hmm. just keeps compounding. And then 10 years later, mm-hmm. y- you know, you've you've really kind of made a, a, some significant um, improvement. Yeah, I, I it was a fascinating piece. I, you know, I, I read it separate from Patrick, and then he said that he wanted to bring it up on the podcast, and I'm glad that he did. It's one of those things, too, that... You're kind of reading it, and about halfway through it, you take a step back and you go, "Holy crap! Like, Is this real?" Yeah. yeah, I mean, because it's and it's it's kind of the dr- it's for lack of a better saying, it's the dream, mm-hmm. if you will. Yeah, that, that people say, "All right, you know what? I'm just going to move to Kenya and train, and I'm going to be pro." And it's not a dreamy life. No, um, I mean, these guys have worked hard and they've given up a lot of stuff. Um, but interestingly enough, one of the things that motivated them to go there in the first place is they didn't they didn't feel at home in in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they felt like um, they didn't really have a whole lot of friends besides each other, of course, twins rule. Um, and and they felt like the people in their town and at their school kind of resented them a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were distance runners, and they said, you know, we weren't rugby players, and so nobody right. really cared. Um, and it, and so it was just kind of fascinating that that was one of the things that inspired them. They're like, you know, this is our home, but this is not really where we feel like we belong. If we go and we train in I ten in Kenya. Um, will will feel more at home. And ultimately they did, and they've now been there for 10 years living the lives of professional runners. Um, this really abstemious lifestyle. Uh, that is fascinating to me too, because yeah. i got to say, whenever I talk to somebody 30 or older who's like who ran and was accomplished in high school and college, mm-hmm. they inevitably have stories of like, oh yeah, I won state, and it didn't even make the announcements yeah. in, in school. Oh yeah. Like, they didn't even, like I can tell you, we won state... I was all state, and like they didn't even put up the banner for like four years. Yeah. And then the only reason they did is because Sports Illustrated called and said, "Hey, we saw your school has like the most or like third most state champions of any." So then all of a sudden they were like making sure they got all like, <laughs> like oh, we didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> th- thank you, Sports and, Illustrated, for telling us our own history. Jeez. And it's it, to me, it's so fascinating because you talk to so many runners, and there's not the same maybe pride or ego, I'm not sure what the right word is, as someone who's like a state champion baseball player, basketball, you know, more of a a televised sport. And it's just fascinating to me how most runners kind of have that outsider's chip on their shoulder. Oh, yeah. No, I... I, You are the only distance runner I know who likes football. Um, Yeah. No, and that's... (laughs) And and, and I count myself amongst that. Um, And and it's because there's a lot of resentment that grows up with that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, once a runner, that's a sub-theme of the book. Um, is is the resentment of the runners towards the football team? You know, I mean, it's 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 a real thing. Um, it's it's um, it's fascinating. It's almost like the uh, the outliers, Malcolm Gladwell, to some degree. Yeah. So a couple of the takeaways from that story, mm-hmm. I think we can kind of relate back to our runners. You know, kind of the everyday runners, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Number two, or number one, running takes sacrifice, mm-hmm. and it hurts when you're having to sacrifice, which and make the sacrifices that we all do day in and day out. But it does bring benefit. It does take time, but you will see some serious gains. And then the second one is, we're fortunate enough that our sport, you can keep improving. I mean, these guys were great runners at 18, mm-hmm. and for 10 years they kept improving. And in many ways, we are lucky enough to have a sport where 
It's not like basketball where it's like, my name's Shaq, I'm 7'5". Now what do I do? Right. Um, we can keep improving. We can keep pushing ourselves. We can keep kind of finding better versions of ourselves and kind of keep digging. So Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the... That is the, the, the great thing about, I feel like, and this is cool, I feel like endurance sports in general and running specifically for me, I've been doing it now for 25 years, and at each phase, each five years or so, I kind of check in with it, and I'm like, what I'm enjoying about it is different from what I enjoyed about it five years ago. That's a great and point. So, and so there, there's, it's, it's, like, it's like the sport, the gift that keeps on giving, you know? And so the thing that I'm enjoying about it now at age 43 is different from what I enjoyed about it at age 23. Yeah, um, and and that, and that's really cool. Um, I think it's great. And the fascinating thing about that is, it, it, your enjoyment changes, and the sport is literally putting one foot in front of the other for a very long time. Right. right. Now it's worth saying too. So so, so this kind of reminds me of, of sort of a side piece of news that you had mentioned that you sent me this week, um, and and I think you might want to introduce it. But there was a and it's talking about getting different things out of the sport. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all doing the same thing. Everybody's putting their foot foot one foot in front of the other. Um, but there was a, there was an article in the Atlanta Journal and Constitution about a 288 pound woman who finished a marathon mm-hmm. um, and is seeking to become the heaviest person ever to to complete a marathon. Mm-hmm. She's currently in training for Ironman Arizona, mm-hmm. um, and and she did the Seattle Marathon a few months ago. But when it comes to the Guinness Book of World Records, you actually have to give them a heads up before you do it, and you have to do it under certain conditions. And so the fact that she completed that one did that count. And so, so if she's able to complete Ironman Arizona or the run in Ironman Arizona, that would count as a marathon, of course, since it, it finishes with a run. Uh, and that would make her, if she at 288 pounds, the heaviest person ever to finish a marathon. Um, you brought it up. I mean, what do you think? I, I just, I love how running is a sport where, like you brought the, the comparison to football before. Football is winning or that's it. Like that's the whole mm-hmm. reason you show up. Um, but running, it's not like... I've never... It's so funny talking to non-runners and they'll be like, did you win the race? I'm like, nobody really... Like, that's not why you show up. You know, like, that's not why you do it. Like, you see that after the Peachtree Road race? It, yeah, exactly, right? And they're like, I thought you were good. I was like, well, okay. Um, but I've I've never felt rivalry with other runners. I've never felt... Um, if, if, if they succeed, then I'm not. It's not a, it's not a zero-sum game. Yeah. But more importantly for me... I can run for different reasons at different seasons of life. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, there are some some years where it's like, this just has to be something I enjoy, and it's just escapism. Mm-hmm. And then there are some years where I'm gunning for the gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I love that it's such a diverse sport, and that you can constantly adapt your goals based on what you're going through in life. For sure. And what stage of life you're in. And like, sh- almost like what you talked about with the Olympics four mm-hmm. years ago, yeah. four twins. <laughs> yeah. All in. Right. Now it's like, look, we just need to keep our head above water and... <laughs> Watch a couple highlights on the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, you know, she says that, that her goal, her mission in, in doing this and publicizing it is to show that, that runners um, and athletes more generally can be all different sorts of shapes and sizes, which is something that I very much agree with. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a lesson that I think it, it took me to do to doing triathlons to learn that ultimately. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I really started doing triathlons and saw the huge range of people mm-hmm. uh, and body sizes there are in triathlon um many of which are great um you know that 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 uh i kind of realized that yeah the the size um, or body shape is not something that stands in your way of doing this and so so i appreciate that um now that being said i do have some qualms about trying to be heavy for a run and so so, so yeah. there, there, there is something about that that to me feels inherently dangerous that you know, so so if she starts running a lot or cycling a lot, which she'll have to do in order to get ready for Ironman Arizona, if she starts riding her bike a ton and starts shedding weight, is she going to try and keep the weight on in yeah, order that she can get this? I mean, presumably she will because she's going to go out for the record. And to me, that's dangerous. Right, like she's gonna have to eat a turkey the night before the race or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, because she'll she'll presumably she'll weigh in before the start of the race, right? Because mm-hmm. that'll be part of the, the Guinness Book of World Records protocols. And so they'll, they'll want is, is she gonna like eat a whole bunch of stuff that morning immediately prior to the race? I mean, that's pretty dangerous. Then she's gonna get in the water. Yeah. Um. And so so yeah, there's. I, I appreciate the message and what she's trying to do, but I do think there's there's some inherent danger in actually trying to be heavy. Right. In in seeking to be really heavy and doing endurance sports. Uh, to say nothing of the stress that's put on our joints and stuff like that. 
Um, so, so I, I, I didn't want to let it go by without saying that. But, but it, it, do, it does pose some, some interesting questions. And like I said, I do very much support her mission in saying that a, a wide variety of people and a wide variety of body types can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, let's talk about some research. Um, so on, on a similar note here, um, uh, there was a, a recent article in a Scandinavian Journal of Science and Medicine and Sports uh, from a group at Monash University in Australia, and it has to do with fueling an event, um, and particularly a long event. I was talking to my sister recently about the differences between like 10 milers and half marathons, which for her, there's a big difference between 10 milers and half marathons because at that point, you're going over the two-hour mark, and you start to start to have to think about fueling, Yep. right? Um, and she likes doing 10 milers more because she doesn't have to think about that because fueling is tough. Um, in... Uh, in triathlon, sometimes they refer to fueling as the fourth discipline. Um, uh, that you know, you swim, bike, you run, and then you also have to do nutrition. Um, mm-hmm. And if you don't fuel well, and in fact, most people don't fuel well, um, that can have as much of an impact on your race um, as as anything else. Um, and so it's kind of it's it, it's sort of interesting um, that that we spend so much time swimming and biking and running, and a lot of people don't spend as much time you know fueling and mm-hmm. thinking about the fueling strategies and all that sort of thing. Now, whenever people reach out to me and they say, oh, you're a coach and you're an athlete, what's the one piece of advice you would give me as I'm getting ready for my Ironman? The one piece of advice that I always give people getting ready for their Ironman is to practice on your long workouts. So you wear your shorts, you wear your sunglasses, you wear your helmet, um, you ride the bike, um, and you practice your fueling strategies on your super long workouts. You don't need to do it every workout, but your super long workouts, you need to test all your gear and all your stuff. You need to do that in practice before you ever do it in a race. Um, so that's kind of a standing piece of advice. Um, yeah, it's a dress rehearsal, yeah. if you will. Yeah, and, and, and I, I say the same thing for, for marathoners. Um, it's just not the one piece of advice I give to people who want to do the marathon. But um, but there's actually, um, and, and besides the practicalities of it, the reason why you give that piece of advice is to say um, that you want to train your gut, right? Mm-hmm. And so in, a, in an Ironman... By the time you get to the marathon, you will have taken in a lot of nutrition. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get there, you are would have already been going for 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 hours yeah. before you have to run a marathon. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of – you have a lot of depletion and you've already taken in a lot of nutrition and all that sort of thing. And so you need to train your gut. It's always been – you need to train your body to be able to run while you're eating and while you're fueling and stuff like that. Same thing goes for 50 miles, 100 miles, ultra marathons and marathons. Um but there's been very little research on whether you can actually train the gut, mm-hmm. whether you can actually train your body to process more calories until this one study that I'm talking about in the Scandinavian Journal of Sports and Journal of Science and Medicine and Sports uh, from this group in, in Australia. And so what they did is they took 18 trained runners. And you've heard me say before, it's better when you use a trained runner because mm-hmm. that way you, know, you have an untrained person, anything works. Right. So they took 18 trained runners um, and they had them run two hours at kind of an easy, steady pace. Uh, while consuming 90 grams of carbohydrates an hour. Now, that's 360 calories an hour. That's a lot. That's far more than most people take in. Uh, most people take in about, most people who fuel well take in between like 250 and 300. Yeah. Uh, and they're taking in 360. Um, they're taking seven gels over the course of two hours. That's a lot. That's a lot of gels. Yeah. Um, and then, so after that hour of fueling, uh, or that two hours of fueling while running, they then had them do a one-hour time trial. Like right then. So they immediately follow it with a one-hour time trial. And so so you're running as much as you can in that hour after two hours of making yourself tired and taking in all this stuff. Uh, 18 train runners, after the first initial trial, all 18 of them reported at least moderate GI distress. All 18 of them. 12 of them reported severe distress. Um, and there was also, in 11 of them, there were signs of what you call carbohydrate malabsorption. And so they're taking in all these carbohydrates and they're not even absorbing them. Right. Um, 11 of them. Um, and so... They, yeah, it's almost like watering the grass and just having the water just roll right down yeah, the hill. Yeah. yeah, you know, there's a massage therapist in town that I go see named Colette Reagan, and she one time said, you know, it's not about how you fuel, it's how you absorb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, she's totally right. So then they, they, they then took this group of 18 train runners, um, all of whom had a hard time consuming 90 grams of carbohydrates an hour, um, and they had two weeks of gut training. So over the course of that, uh, that two weeks, they had 10 one-hour runs. And during those 10 one-hour runs, they took in 90 um, grams of carbohydrates, 360 calories, three and a half gels over the course of that hour. did that 10 times over the course of, of two weeks. Um, and then there were some others for, for half of them. The other ones got placebos, so mm-hmm. that, you know, they placebo gels, so they were just, you know, 
kind of gross, but they're, they're literally gels with no calories. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. yeah. Like um, clear or something. Yeah, right? Um, but anyway, and then, and then of course, they repeat the test after just two weeks of doing this. And um, so, again, two hours, uh, steady running, taking in 720 calories, seven gels, and then they had them run a hard hour. Um, and most of the participants still reported GI systems, <laughs> GI issues, taking in that many calories. Um, but overall, the carbohydrate training group reported a 44% reduction in gut discomfort and a 60% reduction in total gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, they also, more importantly, had less carbohydrate malabsorption in the placebo group, and most importantly, they improved the time trial performance um, from an average of 11.7 kilometers to 12.3 kilometers. Um, so they went farther. Um, uh, I'm going to think about it. that's what an extra uh, point six. Yeah, that, yeah, which that's is solid, incredible. Yeah, which is solid. That's, I mean, that's a significant difference. Yeah, it's what about ten percent, something like that. Yeah, right? um, and the the placebo group didn't improve. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not ten percent; it's like five percent. Uh, but still, um, placebo group didn't improve at all. They improved zero percent. Um, which and that's kind of the proof in the pudding, right? Right. Um, and so the takeaway is that it is possible to train your gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you do train your gut, your performance is probably going to improve as a result, um, in these long events, be they marathons, ultra marathons, or of course, long course triathlons. So, uh, it can be done. Follow the advice. Do it. Yeah. I would say this study certainly passes the smell test, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know most experienced marathoners, triathletes actually have it in their training schedule. No matter how many marathons you've done, mm-hmm. make sure to practice taking gels and goos at least two or three times for maybe one dress rehearsal and then one or two fast finish long runs or super long runs um, because you need to practice taking the gel and essentially training your stomach to, you know, absorb mm-hmm. this just blast of sugar and yeah. glucose. I yeah. mean, that's... Not not just, yeah, not just in terms of being able to digest it, but also absorb it, which right. I think is important. and utilize it. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how... I, I also tell people, be careful... You have to learn what kind of gel to use. Yeah. Because, sure. I mean, this is not water. Right. They're all different. And so right. you need to know, okay, this one has the right amount of, mm-hmm. of sugar that I could absorb. My body's used mm-hmm. to it. You know, if you even if you change flavors with the same brand that has slightly different um, ingredients in it. So, I mean, it's very important. Um, I know, you know, for me personally... I was, so I grew up doing you know five k's, ten k's mile, high school, mm-hmm. college track, mm-hmm. and I didn't even know about gels or anything until a couple weeks before my first marathon, mm. <laughs> and I just did it during like a dress rehearsal long run, yeah. and it was a disaster. Yeah. Um, thank goodness, and then I did it again, mm-hmm. and then by the time the marathon happened, it was like okay, my stomach got used to it. But yeah. if you've never done it before, it mm-hmm. is you know, certainly something you have to kind of work up to. Oh, like yeah. that your body was not the human body over thousands of years of evolution was not trained to absorb that much, mm-hmm. you know, um, sugar at once right. and be able to use it. Now, do you have any rules of thumb for like when to take a gel during a race or during a marathon? Um, How often to space it out? Things like that? Yeah. So, so my, the general rule of thumb that I always give people is about, is about every 25 to 30 minutes okay. to, to take a single gel. And so, so you're, you're talking about, um, about two every hour. One thing that I often will give people or advise people to do, um, is, is to take one early. Yeah. Um, and so, so, cause I think a lot of people, by the time the race starts, it's been a while since they had breakfast. It's been a while since they had their pre-race, whatever. Um, and so if you wait for then 35 minutes into the race to take your first gel, it might be like an hour and a half since you've last had any sort of fuel. Right. And so I, I will often say you should take one at about the two mile mark, mm-hmm. you know, fairly early on, you know, a mile and a half mark, 15 to 20 minutes in, in, into the race. Uh, go ahead and take one early there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, uh, and so, so about two to three per hour, I would say probably five every two hours is, yeah. is about what I generally say. Now in, in the Ironman, it's far more. Um, mm-hmm. when, when, when I've done Ironmans in the past, I've, I've taken 12 gels during the Ironman marathon. Now that's in addition to all the stuff I had during the bike as well. That's incredible. Um, so, so that would be a gel every two miles from, you know, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22, 24. How do you even carry that many? Yeah. Um, six in one pocket, six in the other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Caffeinated ones in one pocket, uncaffeinated in the other pocket. Right. When, when, I, when I did it best, that's how I did it. That's yeah. that's phenomenal. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, but, it's, but it's the fourth discipline. Yeah. You know, it's it's the thing that matters. If you don't do that well, it doesn't matter how well you, you, you swim, bike, and run. And to anybody who's never made that mistake, 
or who's maybe never used a gel, if you are if your stomach's not used to it, regardless of the performance decay or attrition, it's just a miserable experience. Oh yeah. I mean it will ruin your the feeling you get of crossing the finish line oh, yeah. and, and of completing oh, yeah. your first or yeah. second marathon or iron. Yeah, and then as as you spew as you cross the finish line, <laughs> that definitely messes up your uh, your finish line photos as well. Um, yeah, I, that one's not going to be the Facebook profile. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's 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 finish it up here. Uh, let's tell us about your piece of research. Yeah, so my study for this week comes from the NIH and was published in the European Journal of Sports Science. Uh, the purpose of the study was to improve or look at improving well-being and performance indicators in a group of Australian football league players via a six-week sleep optimization program. Now, quick note, these were what we would call soccer players. Right. So when we say Australian football, it's it's not American football. Well, not is, that, is, that, is that rugby or is it soccer? Australian football. Um, it was, they described it as soccer in right, the article. Right, that's cool, that's cool. Because I actually did think about that. And there is actually like an Australian like tackle football league or touchdown football, whatever you want to call it. American football. Yeah, whatever. Um, so it was an intervention study, which I thought was interesting. Um, which followed observations from the players. So the researchers started the study by providing an educational session to the players, explaining how much sleep they needed given their activity level, and how they can increase their sleep duration and quality. Um, And then they tracked how sleepy the players felt throughout the study, which was about a six-week study, along with how much they actually slept, the quality of their sleep, and then related outcomes. And what I found most interesting about this, or one of the things I found interesting about this study is they educated the players to start out. Right. So I think if you go to any adult listening to this podcast and you said, would you like to sleep more? Mm -hmm. We would get at least 99% saying, absolutely, I would love to sleep more. Mm -hmm. But most people don't know how. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, you know, it's, it's... it, it always seems to be at the bottom of the priority list. It's it's a priority, but it's not the top priority. If right. you're juggling kids, job, house, etc., it's, it's the first thing to get sacrificed. It is. I, I know for me, in terms of nutrition, putting in the mileage, it is always the first thing I sacrifice. Um, so back to this study, they found that the diaries kept by the players demonstrated an increase in total sleep time of approximately 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's it, 20 minutes, um, and. Even with only a 20-minute increase in sleep, they found a significant improvement in vigor and fatigue. Like, significant. And I love that. Like, that's Mm -hmm. what made this my favorite study because I have read for several weeks about how, you know, LeBron James sleeps nine hours a night and has a one-hour nap every day. Mm -hmm. Um, For those of you who are into the Olympics, USA ski team star, Michaela Schifrin. I don't know if I said that right. Michaela Schifrin. Schifrin, Yeah. She sleeps nine hours a night, once again, with a one-hour nap every day. And, and I just think to I, my... I mentioned how Andy Potts, you know, famous for athletes, sleeps 11 hours a day. So. Right. And then uh, Pete Ray mentioned yeah. that he has mandatory naps for his athletes. Yeah. And I just listen to that and think, holy smokes, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. I can't... If I sleep nine hours a day, I'm sleeping, like, right when I get home at night. Right. I haven't even eaten yet. Right. Um, but this study really helped open my eyes to say... Just make marginal improvements. Yeah. Because a 20-minute increase in sleep had a significant major improvement in several areas for these athletes. Right. And I love that because I read that and I thought, okay, I can improve sleep by 20 minutes a night. Yeah. Yeah. I can I can cut out one episode of The Office at night. Or yeah. I can not send out that last round of emails. You're still watching The Office? Yeah. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm like that guy. I, I just watch reruns of like Seinfeld in the office. I'll never get into a new show. All right, all right. Um, the, yeah, I, I, I think you're totally right about that. Because when we talk about getting more sleep, people are like, I can't get more sleep. Right. You, you can probably get 20 minutes more sleep. Yes. Um, you know, yeah, okay, you can't take a three-hour nap in the middle of the day. Yeah, you can't add an hour or two hours every single night. But you can probably find 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. At least, if you can't find it every night, you can probably find it most nights. Yeah. Yeah, and so, so every little bit kind of helps. Um, mm-hmm. Every little bit will be good. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's important too. Another thing that kind of stands out to me that I think is interesting, and you mentioned this at the outset, was that they brought them on board with it. They, mm-hmm. kinda, they, they talked to them about it, mm-hmm. and they said, this is why we want to do this. Yeah. Um, and, and convincing them of the efficacy of sleeping more encouraged them to actually sleep more. Right, um, and so, and I think that's important for us as coaches to keep in mind that that people tend to do better when they know the reason why you're asking them to do something, right? Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you just kind of say, go out and run this and bike this and swim this and lift these weights and do these various things, people are going to be more likely to, athletes are going to be more likely to kind of disengage in it, not care as deeply about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but if, if you get them on board with the reasons why those, those things are happening, I think they're much more likely to engage in it. Yeah, um, and I can say for me too, and I don't know if you're the same way, if you say, hey, sleeping more will improve your running, Mm-hmm. That's very abstract, or yeah. I shouldn't say it's abstract, but like I, I'm obviously motivated to be a good runner. But what really convinces me to sleep more is like on this study, they measured their moods. Mm-hmm. They had them self-report on their moods every day. Mm-hmm. They had them self-report on their level, of, perceived level of stress, right. their perceived level of distress when exercising. Mm-hmm. They looked at their psychomotor vigilance. Mm-hmm. All of them were improving. Yeah. And to me, if I say to myself, man, if I just sleep 30 more minutes and that means I'm in a better mood and I'm a happier person mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, a better brother to my siblings, a better, right. you know, right. employee, right. that to me really kind of motivates me to say this is going to be a priority. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, similarly, I, I heard a podcast interview with Jordan Santos recently. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a he's a Spanish exercise physiologist who's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I, I liked the interview that I heard with him a whole lot. But this particular podcast, they always ask at the end, okay, what's the one big piece of advice that you would give? Which is not a bad idea. Maybe we should do that for our next interview. Um, but um, <laughs> but he said, my one piece of advice is whenever somebody says they're going to train more, I say, when are you going to sleep more? Yes. And so, and I think that's fascinating because because if if you say to a busy professional, all right, we're going to add an hour of training this week because we're now ten weeks out from the Ironman that that, that you've targeted, um, mm-hmm. the very first thing that's going to happen, or the very first place that hour is going to come from, is going to come from their sleep. Yep. And so, so that means they're going to sleep an hour less when you add an hour onto their training. Um, and in fact, he's kind of saying the opposite that that if you're going to add an hour to your training, you also need to add some more sleep in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to kind of figure out how to make that work. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. Um, and, and I'm glad you brought this study. And the other interesting thing too is, I mean, I just love how it shows that sleep is a low hanging fruit. A moderate investment yeah. of 20 minutes yeah. leads to significant changes in behavior. Right on. And that's kind of your dream, right? If you're an investor, you want to invest a dollar yeah. and get $5 back. Yeah. yeah. Um, now that being said, I will say when it comes to low, I'm glad you use the term low hanging fruit because we always talk about low hanging fruit, but but so often the low hanging fruit is the thing that's most difficult to motivate yourself to do. Yep, just for whatever reason, low core core stuff, core strength is a low hanging fruit for me. But damned if it's still not really hard to make myself do crunches before I go to bed at night. Right. You know, I mean that's that's low hanging fruit, but it's still hard to make me do it. If 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 I liked doing it, it wouldn't be low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so likewise, I mean, even though it's low-hanging fruit to sleep more, the people who need to sleep more or, or could, could sleep more, um, it could probably benefit the most from sleeping more. That's the word I was looking for. Um, those are the people who are least likely probably to actually make the time um, or, or to, to actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, so fasting stuff. So big takeaway is sleep more. Moderate improvements in sleep lead to major improvements mm-hmm. in performance, you know, both any, any athletically and professionally. Right on. Um, and, and then one quick side note. Uh, I know Steve, my favorite Magnus, an <laughs> Olympic distance coach and head of the uh, Houston Cougars track and cross-country team. His book is on the shelf in the room where we are right now. Yeah, he he's talked about how he coaches college kids. And then one semester, he's like, I'm going to do a study where I just ask them every day. I ask the kids, how stressed are you today? How much sleep did you get last night? Mm-hmm. That's it. No like academic rigor, just... How stressed are you? How much sleep did you get last night? Mm-hmm. And he said it was a there's a clear trend between reduced sleep the night before and increased stress the same day. I'm so sure. it sounds like sleep was affecting stress more so than stress was keeping them up at night. Right on. And there was almost no change even like when midterms came up or finals came up. Right on. So it's interesting. I keep kind of harping about this because quite honestly, back to our coach athlete. Yeah. discussion for me this is low hanging fruit i know for most people i talk to it's low hanging fruit mm-hmm. um but it's just so important right. and it can it can really help us be better athletes and better people which is really the goal of this group and and what we want you know what we want as runners and and athletes agreed and i think that's a good note to end on as a matter of fact thanks patrick thanks george always fun
And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Uh, thanks again for being with us. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, go to our blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com or you can find us on Facebook where most people do, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Uh, you can also check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, at itlcoaching.com. They're on Twitter, at itlcoaching, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash performance. Finally, our other sponsor, my wife, the travel agent, facebook.com slash MEV, or you can find her at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, travelplanner at gmail.com, or on her website, caseytravelplanner.com. Thanks again for listening. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden, and we'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.